Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. You can also find that text in the back of your bulletin. Kids, as everyone is turning to those verses, I have a question for you. Can you name any one of the Ten Commandments? Go ahead. You can yell out an answer, but only one commandment at a time. Yes? Sorry? Do not murder. Yes. Do not commit adultery. That is correct. Do not steal. Yes. No, not quite, but that's close. Love your neighbors yourself. That's a good guess. Yes, no other gods before him. We've got Nima. Yes, honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. That's a pretty good list, kids. That's impressive. Good job. And the, yes. Good job. And the fact that the kids could yell out almost all of the Ten Commandments from memory just illustrates that the Ten Commandments are some of the best-known words in the entire Bible. Many non-Christians and people who have never been to church know of at least some of the Ten Commandments. I think by most people in the world, whether Christian or not, they're considered wise words to live by. What is these wise words and well-known words that we are going to study this morning? So please follow along as I begin reading in Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come and, Father, we, as the psalmist said, As we read earlier, Father, help us to delight in your precepts. Father, instruct us in your word and in your commands. Help us to to love them and cherish them. 
So we pray that you would do these things in us by your spirit today as we come to your word and we come to your commands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to have time to cover every one of the Ten Commandments in detail today, so my goal is to give you a a big picture of the Ten Commandments, a a big picture, a broad perspective on the Ten Commandments. And to that end, I have three points to today's sermon. The first is the context of the commandments, the context of the commandments. The second is the content, the content of the commandments. And then the third is the conclusion of the commandments, the conclusion of the commandments. But first, we want to see the context of the Ten Commandments. So last week, we were in Exodus chapter 19, and we saw God initiate a covenant, a covenant relationship with his people Israel. And what we find here in the Ten Commandments is that the Lord is beginning to explain the terms of that covenant. The terms and the commands and the rules and the precepts by which his people are to live. Uh, The Ten Commandments, they serve as the foundation for all the rest of the laws that God will give to Israel. There's something of a summary of the other 600 plus laws that God will give to the people as they are at Mount Sinai. And so central to the covenant were these words and these Ten Commandments. So important were they to the people of Israel we see here in the text that God spoke directly to the people in Exodus 20. So in a difference from what we saw last week in Exodus chapter 9, God speaks directly to his people. He reveals himself and he reveals his law in the hearing of all. But notice in in verse 2 of our text that before God began to give the commandments, he reminded the people of Israel of who he was, who he is, And that the foundation of his covenant and relationship with his people is grace. So verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And so like we said at the beginning of the sermon, the Ten Commandments are very familiar words to many people. But I think many people wrongly think of the Ten Commandments as just a list of rules that must be followed to be accepted by God. Like a checklist that we have to go down. Do these and we're good with God. Most people, I think, would tell you the reason they will go to heaven, or the reason that they think they will go to heaven is because they're a pretty good person. They follow the rules pretty well. Certainly better than most. That's not what we see here in Exodus chapter 20. It's certainly not what we see in the Bible. Israel was not worthy of God. They were not worthy of relationship with God, just as we are not worthy of God. We're sinners by nature. But God reminds the people first of who he is, the Lord your God. And he reminds them of his grace, that he had already saved them and redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. It was their knowledge of God and the grace of God that preceded their obedience and preceded the giving of the law. And so by saying this first, God was making it clear that it was not his people's obedience to the law that made them his people. It was not the people's obedience to the Ten Commandments that made them his people. They were already God's people. They had already been saved and redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. As I said last week, this order of events is so important for us to understand as Christians because it helps us to understand our own salvation. 
No one is saved. No one is saved because they do a fairly good job of following God's commands. No one goes to heaven because they're a, a pretty good person. No, salvation is only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, you do not become part of God's family through obedience. You do not have to earn your way in. No, instead, your obedience, you're following the law. Your obedience to his commands is to be a response to God's love, a response to his grace, a response to his salvation, a response to the fact that he has already adopted you into his family. And he makes us new creations that we might respond to him in obedience. But friends, if you get hired by a new company, well, what do they do? That company hires you first, and then they train you how to do your job. Well, when you are, are born, you became a citizen of whatever your home country is. You were born, you automatically became a, a citizen of your country, but then you had to learn to live by the laws of your country. It's only after the employee is hired, it's only after the citizen is born that they are given rules to live by. Well, so it was for the people of Israel. So it is for you, Christian. These commandments were not given to make Israel God's people, but to teach them what it looked like to live as his holy people, to live as his treasured possession. It was through their obedience that they were to live out their calling to be a people set apart to him. And Christian, you likewise more fully reflect God's own holiness and character as you follow his commands. You reflect God's character to the watching world as you obey his commands. Well, friends, as we come to the Ten Commandments, it is also important to understand that these laws were given to the nation as a whole. Now, of course, individual Israelites had a responsibility to obey, but it's helpful to remember that these commands were not just given to individuals, but to the nation as a whole. They were to govern the nation of Israel. Now, the corporate nature of the law is helpful to remember when we think about the blessings of obedience and the curses for disobedience that we find here, even in the Ten Commandments. For instance, just look at verse 12. When God said that the people would enjoy long life if they honor their father and mother, he's not speaking to individual Israelites, but to the nation as a whole. In other words, this verse is not teaching that everyone who honored their father and their mother well would have a, a long life. Well, no, instead the nation as a whole would experience God's blessing if the people in general honored their father and mother, if the nation was marked by obedience to these commands, the nation would be blessed. The nation would prosper. The nation would endure in the land that the Lord their God was bringing them into. Well, that gives us something of the broad context of the Ten Commandments, helps us how they understand, at least a little bit, how they functioned in the life of Israel. But what about Christians today? What do the Ten Commandments have to do with us? Well, the New Testament makes it clear that Christians today are no longer under the Old Testament law to include the Ten Commandments, not commanded to follow it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. This is what Paul writes. 
the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, we're no longer under the law. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, Christians are no longer under the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We're sinners by nature. We could not keep the law. And so it was Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf. He fulfilled it on Israel's behalf. Jesus fulfilled the law by being perfectly obedient to the law. And Jesus also fulfilled the law by taking the curse of the law upon himself. On the cross, he took the punishment or the curse deserved by those who broke the law. And because of that, Jesus has now established a new covenant in his blood. The Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant, and Jesus has established a new covenant in his blood. The Old Covenant, the one enacted or established at Mount Sinai, has passed away. We're no longer under the law because faith in Christ has now come. Brothers and sisters, church, that means that the Ten Commandments do not apply to Christians simply because they appear in the book of Exodus. They do not apply to Christians simply because they show up in the book of Exodus. These laws were given to the nation of Israel. They're part of the Old Covenant. However, that is not the end of the story. So do not mishear me. Let me quote Tom Schreiner for a minute because he puts it this way. The moral norms or standards of the law are not binding merely because they appear in the Mosaic Covenant. For that covenant has passed away. It seems that they are binding because they express the character of God. We know they still express God's will for believers because they are repeated as moral norms or moral standards or moral commands in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments are not just rules to live by. They express something of God's unchanging character. The law teaches us about God himself. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us that we find nine of the Ten Commandments repeated in some form or fashion in the New Testament. All but the command to keep the Sabbath holy. These nine of the Ten Commandments are explicitly given as part of the New Covenant. They are given again to God's people, God's New Covenant people in the New Testament. And therefore, they very much do apply to Christians today. The New Testament makes it clear that obedience to these commands are how Christians today and how the church today are still to live as God's holy and set-apart people. Look, I know that was a very brief look at some deep theology. Uh, If you would like to think more about the topic of the Old Testament law and its relation to Christians, I would encourage you to come to our How to Study the Bible equipping class. We're going to take a whole class to think about that in a few weeks. I think in November, we're going to take a whole lesson to think about the Old Testament law and its application to Christians. So let me invite you to come to that if you want to know more. But I give you the context of the Ten Commandments and the context of the Old Testament law because that helps us to better understand the content of the Ten Commandments. So let's better understand the content and how it applies to us. So that's the second point of the sermon, the content of the commandments. The first thing I want you to notice about the Ten Commandments themselves, well, it's just how comprehensive they are. 
So the first four commandments, they deal with our relationship to God. They govern our relationship to God. The last six commandments govern our relationship with one another. You can understand then why Jesus would later say the two greatest commandments are to love God and love neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself, Caleb, not part of the Ten Commandments, but it does summarize the Ten Commandments. The whole law is summarized by those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible commentator Alec Mocher, he helpfully points out that the Ten Commandments cover not just our deeds, not just our actions, and not even just our words, but the Ten Commandments also cover our thoughts, the attitudes of our heart. So do not murder, do not steal, seem to dealing with actions. Do not take the Lord's name in vain, do not bear false witness. So have a focus primarily maybe on our words. But have no other gods before me, do not covet. Those are dealing with the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. The Ten Commandments are comprehensive. They are not just concerned with what we do, but also who we are on the inside. And that is because the words of our mouth, the actions and deeds of our hand, well, they come out of our heart. They spring from the heart. And so church, let's first turn our attention here to the first four commands, those which deal with our relationship to God. The first, very first, God demands that his people give them their, their exclusive worship and devotion. They are to have no other gods before him or no other gods beside him. Now remember that the nation of Israel had just come out of Egypt, which worshipped a multitude of gods, as did all the surrounding nations that were in the promised land that were going to be eventually driven out, all the nations they are traveling through. They also worshipped a multitude of gods. Now the Lord is communicating that his people were to be different. They were to worship him and him alone. This would set them apart as holy to the Lord, distinct from all the other peoples of the world. And not to mention, it is the Lord himself who is deserving of all glory and honor and praise and power. God's people are to worship him alone. God's people are to respond to his saving love and his saving grace with their own love and devotion as reflected in a soul devotion to the Lord. I've heard that one challenge for those who share the gospel with Hindus or those from a Hindu background or sometimes those of the Hindu religion are happily to sim happy to simply add Jesus to, as one of the many gods that they worship. They're happy to bring Jesus into the mix. They may say they even believe in Jesus. They may say they have faith in Jesus. But to accept Jesus as one of many is no true faith at all. The Lord is one of one, deserving of all glory and honor and power. God demands that he just not be one of many gods, but that he alone is worshipped. Friends, that means that God must take priority over your family, your friends, your career, your dreams, your desires. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and anything 
else, no matter how seemingly good it is. Your whole life is to be lived in devotion to the Lord. This is what sets Christians apart as God's people. We live for His glory, not our own. My friends, God does not just demand that He alone be worshipped. He commands how He is to be worshipped. Look at verse 4. God commanded that His people make no idols. Now this certainly meant that the people of Israel were not to set up wooden or, or gold or silver, silver idols of the false gods like the nations around them did. But it can be argued already that that was prohibited by the first commandment. This command means more than that. This command also means that we are not to make visual representations of God for the purpose of our own worship. God's people are not to make visual representations of God for the purpose of worship. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer asserts that visual representations of God, whether that is in the form of an idol or a picture, well, they obscure God's glory and they convey false ideas about God because there is nothing in the world that can accurately represent God. There is no pictorial representation of God that we can have or we can conjure up that will accurately represent God. And so if we use an image to worship God, we'll come to think of God as the image portrays him rather than as he truly is and rather than how he has revealed himself in his word. Your understanding of God will be distorted. God's glory will be obscured. Church, this is why Protestant Christians, we are Protestant Christians, have historically argued against the use of icons or crucifixes or religious statues in worship or to aid worship. It is a form of idolatry because the thoughts and attention of the worshiper are directed to the image and away from the Lord. J.I. Packer goes on to write this in Knowing God. He, he writes this. How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect or artist. I do not think of God as a judge. I like to think of him as simply father. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. Church, God has revealed himself in words, not in images, and not in our imaginations. He revealed himself in, in words at Mount Sinai, and he reveals himself today to you in his work. Therefore, as his people, we are to take our thoughts about God from his word. It is through his word that we can know him rightly. Look at verse 5. The reason that God commanded how he is to be worshipped is that he is a jealous God. Like a husband wants the exclusive devotion of his wife, so the Lord wants the exclusive devotion of his people. So the Lord wants the exclusive devotion of his people, and the Lord is deserving of that devotion. He is deserving of all glory and honor and praise as we have already thought about. 
So like a marriage, we see in verses 5 and 6 that if the people will give their exclusive love and devotion to the Lord, they will enjoy the blessing of relationship with Him, a close, intimate relationship. The Lord will enjoy the... Uh, the people of Israel will enjoy the blessings of relationship with the Lord. But if not, they will bring on themselves the, the curses of the covenant. Now remember, these blessings and curses were directed to the nation as a whole. They're not teaching that your family will be cursed by God for generations if you happen to do something bad. It's not what these verses are teaching. No, God was teaching that Israel as a nation would experience long-term blessings for obedience long-term consequences for disobedience. Sin has consequences. Consequences that can be felt for generations. This is exactly what happened to Israel when they disobeyed the Lord. War came. They were defeated by their enemies. They were eventually exiled from the land. Uh, The people who were exiled were not just feeling the results of their own sin, but the results of the sin that came before. Many generations felt the consequences of their national disobedience. Well, we learn something important in this, that God holds out the blessings of obedience and the curses for disobedience. We learn that to live under God's authority is how we enjoy God's blessing. To live under his authority is how we enjoy his blessing. God's law does not restrict. No, instead, God's law frees you and directs you on how you are to live the good life. Not a life defined by material prosperity, but a life defined by living according to his design and in relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, that is what you have been created for. You've been created to worship. You've been created to live in relationship with God. As God's covenant people, we carry his name. It takes us to the third commandment. In the Bible, God's name is not just a name. God's name is a description of his character. It tells us of of who he is. This is why his name is not to be treated lightly. So brothers and sisters, you should heed the warning of the third commandment not to misuse the name of the Lord. Might should influence the type of media and movies and TV shows you you should consume as well. God's name should not be used as a curse word or in a casual manner, like saying, oh my gosh, except just inserting the name of the Lord instead. Brothers and sisters, how you use God's name reflects what you think about who he is. But the third commandment speaks about more than just our words. In Ezekiel chapter 36 God accused the nation of Israel of profaning his name among the nations through their disobedience and unfaithfulness. In Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, the Apostle Paul gives this rebuke to the Jewish people. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, and he's quoting Ezekiel 36 here, for as it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. A Christian, by adopting you into his family and entering into covenant with you, God has placed his name on you. Now this is amazing and wonderful. 
We as his people carry the name of the Lord. We are identified with him. We carry his name just like a child carries the family name. A child is born, they carry the family name. But that does mean that your sin brings shame to the name of the Lord. Just like a wayward child brings shame to the family name. Church, God calls you to be holy as He is holy because you carry His name. He has wrapped up something of His glory in you, in His people. He has set His name on His people. Therefore, He calls you to be holy as He is holy. Brings us to the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. Notice again that observing the, the Sabbath was a way for Israel to reflect the character of God. God rested on the seventh day when he created the world. So Israel was to reflect, to rest on the seventh day. His people were to share in God's rest. In fact, you could say that this is the goal of all creation. We will one day rest in God's presence forever, enjoying our fellowship with him, enjoying the, the goodness of his new creation, will enjoy his blessing forever, will rest in that blessing and in his presence forever. So the Sabbath here was given as a sign of the Old Covenant, a visible picture that Israel belonged to God. It was also an expression of trust in the Lord. Resting on the Sabbath meant that the people had one less day to make money, one less day to plant and harvest crops. They had to trust that the Lord would provide for their needs in the other six days available to them to do their work. To rest and devote a day to the Lord was a weekly reminder that he was their provider, but also that he was deserving of their soul worship and devotion. It was a reminder that true blessing came from not following their own way. True blessing came from living under the authority of the Lord. Church, do you see the connection between thoughts and actions here? Between thought and deed. If Israel fully trusted the Lord as provider, well, keeping the Sabbath holy and resting would not be a challenge. It would be a natural expression of their trust and their, their love for the Lord. But if they doubted that God would provide, well, observing the Sabbath would, would certainly be much more difficult. They doubted that God was actually going to provide for them. It would be much harder to rest and take a day off from the harvest or take a day off from what they wanted to do. Now, this command concerning the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Now, as Christians, we are commanded to regularly gather together with the local church for corporate worship. It is not an optional part of the Christian life. See Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. A church that sometimes might require you to trust that the Lord will give you the time that you need to get other things done. And he will give you the physical rest you need as you devote time to him. But Christians are not commanded to physically rest for one day every week. So that is a wise thing to do. It is not a sin if you have to work on Sunday. It's not a sin if you have to work on Sunday. It's not a sin if sometimes your work takes you away from the church service. Instead, what we find in the New Testament is that we are to find our Sabbath rest in Jesus himself. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, that means that through faith in Jesus Christ, you can rest from your efforts to earn your way to God. 
Now, if you have ever felt the burden of trying to be good enough, trying to do enough good to outweigh your bad, to do enough to please the Lord and find His favor, brothers and sisters, you can rest from that burden. And you can rest from that burden because Jesus has met God's standard for you. Therefore, you can rest in His righteousness. It's through our union with Jesus that we will enter heaven, the place of God's final rest. It's not because of our own righteousness. It is because of Jesus' righteousness applied on our behalf when we come to Him in repentance and faith. We can rest from our efforts to earn our way to God. Because Jesus has done what we could not do. But church, you can and should find rest in Jesus even now. It's not something we are to do just do one day every week. No, we're to constantly and continually find our rest in Him. Therefore, church, I would argue that if your soul is constantly anxious, if the troubles of this world constantly discourage you, if you are continually, if you are continually plagued with doubt and fear, perhaps you're not finding your rest in Christ at all. Brothers and sisters, the state of your emotions and the state of your soul are a sign of whether or not you are trusting in the Lord. They are a sign of whether the Lord has your full trust and devotion. The Lord is trustworthy. He is good. You can rest in Him. The, the next six commandments that we come to deal with our relationships to one another. I'm going to spend a good bit less time on these commandments for a couple of reasons. First, it's because our relationship to God, it is our relationship to God that is foundational to everything else. It's foundational to our relationship with one another. We get the first four commands right, the rest will follow. But the second reason is because, Lord willing, we'll be thinking a little bit more about loving our neighbor next week. Now, one helpful thing to remember is that these commands were not just a way to love neighbor, though they were, but they also served to govern the nation of Israel. They were necessary for a well-ordered society. Perhaps this is why the first commandment deals with our relationship to our father and mother. First commandment about our relationship with one another deals with a child's relationship to their parents. God designed the family to be the foundational unit of society. Therefore, well-ordered families are essential to a well-ordered society. And blessings would come to Israel if their families functioned as the Lord intended. In general, brothers and sisters, blessings come when we live in this world as God designed and intended. They're not guaranteed. Blessings are only guaranteed in the life to come. But in general, things go well as we live in this world according to God's design. Now, this should be a warning to those countries, including my own, that are working in warp speed to undermine traditional marriage and the traditional family structure. They are inviting, not God's blessing, but God's judgment. And kids, I want you to listen again for a moment. I want you to see how much God cares for you. 
God chose only to give ten commandments when he spoke directly to the people at Mount Sinai. And yet he chose to give one command to children specifically. Now God wants you to obey all his commands, but he gave one specifically to you. In that you should see that you are never too young to honor God. God invites you to follow him even now. And one of the main ways that you can follow after the Lord even now is by honoring your parents. And by listening to them, by obeying to them. God tells you that to listen to your own parents and to obey your parents and to honor your parents is a way that you honor him. But kid, God did not give this commandment to make your life hard or difficult. He gave this command to you to bless you. God has given you parents to help make you wise, to direct you in the way you should go, to keep you from trouble, to protect you. And so often as you honor your parents, joy and peace and satisfaction and wisdom and protection follow. God gave you this command because God wants your good. Following the command to honor one's father and mother, we find something of a rapid-fire list of commands. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false witness against your neighbor. We're not going to look at these commands in detail, but I do want you to see a few things. First, notice how important these commands would be to a well-ordered society. G.K. Chesterton once said, if men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. In other words, the reason that nations today need so many thousands and thousands of laws, more than we could ever know, is because in general people do not follow the Ten Commandments. Living life apart from God's rule invites more restriction, not less. We see again how much God cares about the family here as well, as he prohibits adultery. Faithfulness in marriage is both essential to a well-ordered society, but as we see in Ephesians 5, as we are faithful to one another, we reflect God's faithfulness to us. He is faithful to his covenant with us, So we are to be faithful in our covenant of marriage with one another. Third, we see that these laws, again, focus not just on actions, but also words. The Israelites were commanded to be honest, especially when giving testimony in a court of law. They were not to intentionally harm their neighbor by telling an untruth. They were not to intentionally harm their neighbor. And they were not to seek their own gain by telling something untrue. Christians, similarly, God commands that your yes be yes, that your no be no. You are to be marked by truthfulness and honesty. And fourth, we see that these commands are rooted in the character of the Lord. We are to tell the truth because we serve the God of truth who does not lie. We are not to murder because it is God who is the giver of life. And all people have been made in his image. They are worthy of honor and dignity and protection. We are not to commit adultery because we are to display his faithfulness and our faithfulness to one another. That brings us to the tenth and final commandment, the commandment to not covet. Now again, notice that this commandment is not focused primarily on actions or words, but in our thoughts and our attitudes. And this is how Alec Mulcher put it. The Tenth Commandment is the point at which every breach of the law begins. 
when by our own evil desire we are dragged away and enticed. Improper desire is the root of all evil. It can seldom be reached by human legislation, but it is open to the searcher of hearts. The intent is that which, in the last resort, determines the moral character of the act. This last command is, therefore, the interpreting clause of the whole Ten Commandments. Think about it. People steal because they desire that which they do not have, and they want what their neighbor has. Adultery comes when someone covets their neighbor's spouse or covets somebody who is not their own. We generally lie for our own personal gain to protect ourselves or to get what we want. We turn away from God when there is something or someone that we desire more. This is what he means when he writes that this commandment is the point at which every breach of the law begins. The coveting of our heart is shown by our willingness to commit actions or to say words that are sinful. This is why in Colossians 3.5, Paul writes that covetousness is idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. Coveting is to put another God before the Lord. It is to desire something more than we desire the Lord. It is to be devoted to something so much that we're willing to disobey the Lord to get it. Coveting is idolatry. Friends, make no mistake, sin comes from your hearts, from the inner self, from the core of who you are. Therefore, true obedience is not found in simply keeping a list of rules on the outside, but by honoring the Lord in your heart. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need Jesus to give us new hearts. Is this not what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Inward anger is the root of outward murder. A harsh word and murder both spring from a heart of anger. The words of our mouth and the actions of our hands spring from the corruption of our hearts. Adultery is not just the physical act, but it is also found in the lust of the heart. Your outward sins are simply signs that you are treasuring or coveting something or someone other than the Lord. Church, God demands that we be his holy people, not just in actions and words, but also in thought and in attitude. The Ten Commandments are comprehensive. Brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, the conclusion of the commandments. Look again at verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Now it is interesting when Moses responds to the fear of the people in verse 20, he tells them to not be afraid. But then he immediately tells them that God has come down to test them so that they will fear him and not sin. That seems a bit contradictory on the face of it. So what what is going on here? I think we're seeing that a proper fear of the Lord is not terror. God's people are under God's protection 
and they do not need to be terrified of him. God desired to do good to his people, Israel. He saved them and gave them his law to govern them so that they might enjoy his blessings, so that they might have relationship with him. The people did not need to be terrified of God. He loved his people. He desired their good. He holds out the blessings of his presence to his people. Yet at the same time, we are, as God's people, to have a proper reverence and awe for him. He is a God of unmatched power. He is glorious in holiness. We should approach him with reverence and awe, with a holy fear. There's a healthy fear of the Lord, a healthy respect for his glory and his holiness and his greatness and his power that produces faithfulness in us. It warns us away, or it's intended to warn us away from rejecting him and his word. It invites us into a relationship with him. And so God speaks to the people here and gives them a taste of his glory and majesty so that they will remember who he is. It will be implanted on their minds. They will remember the greatness and the glory of their God. And that will encourage their obedience. Well, here Moses said that one of the purposes of the law was that, that God gave was to test the people, to see if they had this fear of the Lord in their hearts. It was to reveal to them their hearts. The Lord knew their hearts, but it was to reveal it to the people. The law reveals what is in our hearts. It reveals our thoughts. It reveals our emotions. It reveals our inner self. The law reveals whether we are truly devoted to the Lord. In Romans, Paul writes this in chapter 3, verse 20, that through the law comes knowledge of sin. One of the purposes of the law was to expose our sin. In the law, we see God's character, we see his goodness and his holiness and his love. Because of this, we should simultaneously see how woefully short that we fall of God's standard. The law exposes our inability to please a holy God. It exposes the inner corruption of our hearts, that we are sinners by nature and we are not like God. Therefore, I believe in part the people of Israel recoiled in terror from the Lord because the law exposed who they really were. It exposed them as unclean stand sinners standing in the presence of the glorious holiness of the Lord. As one commentator put it, the Israelites suddenly have no desire to approach God's holy presence. They instinctively sense their need for a mediating priesthood or some representative who will dare to approach God on their behalf. So they look to Moses. But as we saw last week, Moses' role as a mediator between the people and God was simply a shadow that pointed forward to the greater mediator to come, Jesus Christ. Church, the, the law reveals the sin of our hearts, but it does not provide the remedy that we need to address it. It gives us the diagnosis, but not the cure. It cannot change our hearts. We need to be made new. We need to be cleansed, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Thus, the law points us to our need of a savior and a mediator. The law points us to our need for Jesus Christ. Church, Jesus came into the world and did what Israel could not do and what you cannot do. 
He perfectly obeyed God's law and perfectly reflected the character of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, not just outwardly, but inwardly. He obeyed from the heart. And yet Jesus died on a cross in the place of sinners like us. And he died not only to bear the punishment for our law-breaking, but to write his law on our hearts. To give us new hearts. To make us new creations in him that we might live for his glory and that we might be his holy people. Through faith in Jesus, God writes his law in our hearts and gives us his spirit that we might obey. Church, this is why salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ and not in our own efforts. And so friends, my prayer is that your takeaway from this sermon on the Ten Commandments is not, I just have to try harder. I just have to do better. I just have to work more to please the Lord. That is the wrong takeaway from the Ten Commandments. But it's true that we should all strive after holiness. But I want you to see that you cannot meet God's standard on your own. Your hearts are corrupt. You fall short. You need to be born again. But God sent Jesus into the world to do what you cannot do. He came to give you new life in Him. And so justification, forgiveness, and salvation, and life, they do not come through works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.